Turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. God's word, listen reverently and carefully to it as I read it to you, the first three verses of Leviticus chapter 10. I'm actually going to back up to Leviticus 9, verse 22, um, to give you the context here. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So Aaron Therefore, kept silent. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for all of the scriptures, including ones that are somewhat difficult um, or disturbing to read, such as the one that I have just read. Lord, all of your scriptures are profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. Uh, Perhaps especially passages such as this. Would you please aid us in understanding the import of what you are saying here uh, through Moses' pen, and that you would also, Lord, help us to understand how it applies to us in our day and age. Please grant me Grace, Lord, would you please, Jesus, speak through me to your people now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, have you ever heard of a word, you probably have, but maybe you haven't, heard the word zealous? you ever heard that word? It's kind of a grown-up term. The reason I even bring it up is because I'm going to be using it throughout this sermon. So I want you to know what zealous means. It comes from another word called zeal. Um, And zeal describes something where, where somebody has a very strong feeling about something. A very, very strong opinion and feeling about something uh, in their life or around them. Uh, and the zealous person is has those strong feelings and feels those strong feelings. Now, um, we can be zealous about different things. I'll give you some examples of you kids that you where you might be zealous about something. You might be zealous about certain foods. By the way, we can be zealous in a positive way or a negative way. So let me give you an example. In a positive way, you can be zealous for ice cream. I imagine most of you children and most of you adults are. I certainly am. Um, 
Uh, I have strong feelings about ice cream. I really enjoy ice cream, and I bet you do too. But we can also have strong feelings and zeal in a negative way. So you might have a strong feeling about Brussels sprouts that might not be positive. But you have a strong reaction when you hear, when you see Brussels sprouts on your plate and your mommy says you need to eat those. You can also be zealous about certain ideas. People can be zealous about ideas. So, for example, we as Christians are zealous about the fact that the God of the Bible is the true God. And I hope all of you are zealous about that idea, that truth, is that's what it in fact is. True. Or the idea that sin is not a good thing and is something that all people should avoid engaging in. We can be zealous for that idea, and hope, hope all of you are. You should be if you're a Christian. Also, we can be zealous about that, that certain things should be done a certain way. People who have OCD are zealous about certain things. Uh, but I'll give you an example. You don't have to know what OCD is, children. But you can be zealous about the way your hair is cut. You want your hair perhaps cut in a certain way, and it's got to be done that way. And so you want to make sure the barber or your mom or whomever is doing it um, cuts it the way you want it cut. And you can be pretty uh, fired up about that. That's zeal, kids. Uh, a Kind of a rough and ready definition of it. And I want to tell you something right now, and that's what this sermon is about. God is a God who is zealous about things. And in this text that we're looking at here this morning, specifically on this occasion, God is zealous about his worship that comes from his people, those who claim to be his children. God is zealous about that worship and feels strongly about the way he is worshipped by you and me. Not just we who are adults, but you children also. And he's very, very zealous about that. And that is the overriding kind of background to the points that I'm going to make here and the two points that we're going to make, the, the, the longer first point and the shorter second point from this passage here today, that God is a zealous God. He has strong feelings about his worship, that is, our worship of him that he has commanded us to engage in. So that leads us to these two points, and here they are. The first is this. Because God is exceedingly zealous for his own worship, you and I must not worship him according to our own desires. You and I must not worship him according to our own desires. And secondly, because God is exceedingly zealous for his own worship, you and I must only worship him in accordance with his expressed commands. Those are the two points that we are going to bring out of this text, that are in this text, I should say, and that I am going to bring out in the next few minutes for you. First, because God is exceedingly zealous for his own worship, you and I must not worship him according to our own desires. Folks, this is precisely the sin that Nadab and Abihu were guilty of on this occasion. Look at verse 1 again. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, on the fire pan, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The strange fire was strange to whom? To who? The Lord. It was strange to the Lord. And it was strange to the Lord precisely because it had not been authorized by him. That is, he himself had not commanded that fire that they were using to be used by them in his worship. Now, the way the phrase in the last part of verse 1 there that I emphasized a moment ago when I read it, the way that phrase is translated from the Hebrew 
has major implications. This is one of the reasons why knowing the original languages, having somebody in your pulpit who knows the original languages, um, why this is important. One of the, this is an example of that. Because the way the Hebrew is translated has major implications for the way we understand and apply this passage to our worship of the Lord, this and other passages too. There are two basic translations of this uh, of the Hebrew phrase, which is rendered in the New American Standard from which I'm reading, which he had not commanded them. That is one rendering of it, which he had not commanded them. The New American Standard translates it that way. Essentially, the ESV, the English Standard Version, translates it essentially that way. And so too does the New King, King James Version. And there may be others as well, but I just I checked those versions. They all essentially translate it one way, which he had uh, uh, strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And then the other way that you'll find in translations, in some translations, is, um, I'll reread it, uh, he offered strange fire before the Lord contrary to his command. The NIV translates that Hebrew phrase contrary to his command. The strange fire was contrary to his command. One of these translations is a faithful rendering of the Hebrew, and the other is not. Now, before I tell you which one is which, let's look at the implications of these two translations, uh, two different translations. So first, let's take the uh, the last one I just mentioned to you, the translation of uh, offered strange fire contrary to his, meaning to God's command. If that were the translation, if that translation were correct then as long as a given activity does not contradict or stand in opposition to one of God's expressed commands, it is acceptable for corporate worship, for inclusion in corporate worship. If it's not contrary to some commandment that God has given respecting uh, our worship of him. In other words, if it's not contrary... Uh, then God has no problems with it being included in his corporate worship. Or, or any kind of worship, by the way, not just corporate, but particularly corporate. So that's, um, so, and this position, this view that I just uh, articulated, is equivalent to the traditional Lutheran position on the subject of worship. And the traditional Lutheran position is uh, summed up by the phrase, whatever is not explicitly forbidden by God is permissible in his worship. And this is, by the way, the position to which the vast majority of American evangelicals and the churches that they attend either knowingly or unknowingly subscribe to. That's the position. Uh, Whatever is not explicitly forbidden is permissible in God's worship. So that's the, those are the implications of that, that first uh, tr- rendering contrary to his command. Now, here's the, here are the implications of the second translation of the Hebrew, and that is, strange fire, which he had not commanded them. That translation, if that's correct, then if a given activity is not explicitly or clearly, explicitly or implicitly clearly commanded in God's word by God uh, as as an appropriate element of his worship, that activity is forbidden in God's worship if it's not explicitly or by clear implication commanded by God in his word as an appropriate element of worship. This, folks, is the traditional Reformed position on worship and how we believe God wishes it to be done. It is the minority position. Even in many so-called Reformed and Presbyterian churches, it is the minority position. And as you have already guessed, I'm sure, it is the second translation, strange fire which he had not commanded them, that is the correct translation of the Hebrew there. The NIV translation and others that mimic it are simply wrong. And it is not a faithful rendering of the original. 
Sadly, due to the popularity of the NIV and paraphrases um, uh, that probably follow the NIV, although I didn't, I can't say I looked at uh, the Living Bible uh, translation in preparation, but I'm pretty sure it would. Due to the popularity of such Bibles uh, or translations, these are the words, contrary to his command, that the majority of American Christians read when they read Leviticus 10. Probably. Um, American Christians, that is to say. And it's just misleading. Um, it's more than misleading. It's just wrong. But, so, in other words, uh, the the sin uh, that Nadab and Abihu committed was they offered something that God which was not commanded. In other words, that God didn't say, you can do this in my presence. That was their sin. This was also the sin that the Israelites were guilty of in the golden calf incident at the foot of Mount Sinai that we read of in Exodus 32, 1-10. through 10. I'm not going to take the time to read that. Most of you are quite familiar with that, uh, that uh, episode, that sad episode in biblical history. Uh, but what you may recall what happened on that occasion was they were worshiping what they claimed to be, and Aaron actually uses the word, a feast to the Lord. And that Lord there is the, the four Hebrew letters that are the name of the Hebrew God, which we, uh, sometimes is rendered Yahweh. Uh, and so that, that incident was supposed to be a feast to the Lord. So they had God, if you will, their, their God, that the patriarchs uh, had covenanted with, and that they had covenanted with, in mind in that event, that worship episode. And so they claimed to be worshiping Yahweh. But they apparently didn't like the fact that God was not visible to them. The Egyptian gods, you could see them. You could actually see them, and you could touch them, and maybe even smell them. I don't know. But you couldn't do that with the Hebrew God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, they were they, they wanted something a little more um, uh, sensuous. Not sensual. Sensual. Well, actually, it was sensual, too. Anyway, uh, the point is they wanted to see their uh, what they, uh, something in their worship of the Lord. Um, something they could see and touch and bow down before. So, they made an image of a golden calf to represent God, to represent Yahweh, and then they proceeded to bow down to it before it as if it was Yahweh. And the Lord was, as you know, furious. So furious, in fact, that he threatened to destroy the whole nation of Israel on that occasion, and would have done so had Moses, who was acting as a type of Christ on that occasion, not intervened on their behalf. It still was quite deadly for quite a few. So this sin of uh, not of worshiping God according to one's own desires was not only a sin of Israel, not only a sin of Nadab and Abihu. There are other examples in Scripture as well of people who uh, worshipped God the way they wanted to, in accordance with their desires. Another one was King Uzziah. He was guilty of this sin. We read of it over in Second Chronicles, uh, chapter twenty-six, verses uh, sixteen and following. On that occasion, and again, I won't turn to it, but uh, Uzziah, who was the king of Israel, very, very important person, whom was God's anointed, but he was a king, he wasn't a priest. Uzziah entered the temple, entered into the temple to burn incense to the Lord, even though the Lord had made it abundantly clear earlier in Israel's history that no one, No one other than the descendants of Aaron were allowed to enter the temple, let alone to burn incense to the Lord there. Well, he did, because he was full of himself and thought, I have the right because I'm the king of Israel. Something to that effect. We don't know what went into his mind, but surely that thought was in his head or he wouldn't have done something so stupid and so uh, irreverent. And so the Lord, of course, was highly displeased with Uzziah, his presumption, and as a result of his presumptuous, uh, idolatrous behavior, uh, God immediately smote him with leprosy from head to toe, which remained with him till the day of his death, the text tells us. 
he wanted to worship God in accordance with his desires and paid the price. God doesn't like that. It's putting it mildly. And it doesn't make any difference, any difference, how sincere we are or how good our motives are as we engage in such, I'll call it, well, to use Paul's terms in Colossians, man-made worship, or a self, self, you know, the, I'm, I'm forgetting the point of the actual uh, self, something worship. Man-made worship, creative worship, that was in accordance with man's desires. Um, if you look, and we'll go there, to Second Samuel, turn to me there, Second Samuel chapter 6. This is the uh, incident of the uh, transportation of the ark. And uh, they were transporting the ark from the house of uh, Abinadad, Abinadab, it was in Kiriat-Jerim, to, uh, David was in charge of this, to bring it to Jerusalem <clears throat> um, and have it set up there. And so we read, I'll start, I'll start in verse uh, 1, read through verse 7. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Here's the important part. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it. For, notice this phrase, the oxen nearly upset it. That is the cart and the ark that was on it. Then we read in verse 7, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Uzzah reaches out to grab hold of the ark because it looked to him like the ark was about, and it probably was, about to fall off this cart, which, which, was on, which it was on, as it was being transported in, and Uzzah, considerate man that he was, didn't want the ark of God to be damaged. Surely, there's nothing wrong with that sentiment, is there? With a desire on his part to not see the ark of God damaged? The the ark, after all, was God's throne room on earth. God's throne, I should say, on earth. Is there anything wrong with that desire? The answer is no. It's perfectly appropriate, perfectly a, a, a good thing for him not to want to see the ark of his God that he professed damaged. But that desire only and did, in fact, become a problem when Uzzah used his desire to help God out, to prevent the ark from being damaged, he used it as an excuse, and this is the key, for ignoring God's expressed command concerning the handling of the ark and other things like it. The ark was to be carried by a a descendant of Kohath the Levite, Uh, and there's actually no firm proof that um, that uh, Uzzah was a Levite. He could have been. There's actually, it's uncertain when you compare the various texts. Um, but there's a, there's a probability, actually, that he was not a Levite. So that was one thing. But even if he was, they were all transporting the ark 
the wrong way. Um, and actually, no, I'm sorry, he, he couldn't have been a descendant of uh, the uh, of Kohath. And but they were also transporting the ark on this cart rather than using acacia poles that fit through um, uh, metal holes that were uh, or rings rather that were placed on the ark for that purpose. And so Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark. And the text tells us, as I just read, that God viewed Uzzah's behavior as an extreme, an act of extreme irreverence toward him. And that prompted God to strike him dead for that irreverence. Now my guess is, in fact it's not really a guess, I don't think, most churchgoers today even Christian churchgoers would view this as um, an extreme overreaction on, or seeming overreaction on God's part, especially in light of others' good intentions. Those that would view God's behavior on this occasion this way as an overreaction just don't have a clue about the magnitude of God's zeal for his own worship. God is extremely zealous and jealous for his worship. And what we can learn from this uh, should be fairly obvious, I think. We, uh, being well-intentioned about how we go about worshiping God, if it's not in accordance with his expressed commands or clearly implied commandments, uh, those also are, uh, are legitimate uh, applications. But if we are worshiping God, well-intentioned though we might be, and are ignoring what God says about how he re- expects to be worshiped by us as people, we must not do that. So, for example... Women preachers. There are women who are in pulpits in our land, perhaps even claiming to be evangelicals, perhaps trusting in Jesus savingly. Although that's questionable. But who uh, stand in pulpits of the land and ignore God's commandments regarding the uh, offices of the church and who is to uh, fulfill the, or fill those offices and who is not. Um... God does not approve of, and it's not that women are inferior. Roles are different. That's the issue. In the home and in the church, roles for men and women are different. And that's not a problem. That's not a uh, a statement of uh, inferiority on God's part with respect to women. God doesn't approve of that. He doesn't approve, there's nothing in the scriptures that we should have drama teams up here. There's nothing in the scriptures that said I should be covered with a stole and have crosses all over me and have gold weave coming down on my lapel. There's nothing in the scriptures that says we should have a procession here with acolytes and flames and crosses and the like. There's nothing in scripture that says anything about that. There's nothing in scripture that says there should be a flag there or there in our worship service because we're good... Americans, and of course, all good Christians uh, should have flags in their churches. There is a flag out there, but notice it's not in this room where we worship. It's out there. And the list goes on. Statues of, or paintings of Jesus, stained glass of, well, of somebody's uh, conception of Jesus, not Jesus. None of those things are found in Scripture, and we are not to want those things. And we indeed are to protect ourselves from those things, as much as part of us may want that. I confess, I go to a church, I've been to uh, Europe, and I've been to Notre Dame, back before it burned, uh, and other churches like it, and it's glorious. It is, it's magnificent. It's idolatrous. But it is there's something very appealing to the grandeur and the beauty of the Titian and Michelangelo and all the Da Vinci and all the statuary that we find and uh, the beautiful colors and the, the uh, towering 
buttresses and all that. But it's not in here. It's not in here. And so we have to resist requiring or wanting those things or allowing those things in our worship. Nor does, by the way, uh, in addition to our desires make no difference, what we want makes no difference with respect to the way we approach God, nor does the fact that our, our way, the way we in kind of intuitively think this is the way it should be done, what the way that our way appears to be more expedient than God's way, um, more efficient or more whatever, that even if we feel that way about something that some other church is doing, uh, that doesn't make any difference either. And the reason, uh, a text that proves this point, by the way, is 1 Samuel chapter 13. Turn to me there. First Samuel 13, starting in verse 5, I'll read it through verse 14. Here's, here it goes. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon, Aven, rather. When the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. Also, some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him trembling. Now, He waited seven days, according to the appointed time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from him, were scattering rather from him, from Saul. So Saul said, bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And it came about as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, that behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. That's Saul's excuse. Verse 13, And Samuel said to Saul, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Folks, the Lord had given Saul specific instructions through Samuel, his prophet, his spokesman, as to when it was appropriate for Saul to seek the Lord's favor prior to going into battle with the Philistines. And that was after Samuel arrived. Now Saul didn't do this as he was instructed. But there were some seemingly good reasons why he didn't wait for Samuel to show up. As we read in the text, Saul's men were beginning to scatter out of fear of the Philistines and of their possible surprise attack. Uh, Saul had waited for seven days, presumably not the whole of the seventh day. But it was the seventh day, apparently, and he had waited until that point for Samuel, as Samuel had told him to do, but Samuel wasn't, wasn't on the scene yet. And notice also, Saul understood that he needed to seek the Lord's favor before he went into battle. And so he did that. He offered the sacrifice. 
Yet, in spite of all of these seemingly good excuses, pragmatic, practical excuses and motives, the Lord was still angry with Saul for his failure to heed his command. And by the way, to obey is to worship. It's broader than the worship we're engaging in here. Uh, although he was offering, uh, it was a worship service that he engaged in, but his, uh, his timing of that worship service was an act of worship, and it was bad worship because he ignored what God said. Like Nadab and Abihu, he was not treating God as holy. That Saul thought he had compelling reasons for worshiping God his way, Saul's way, rather than God's way, given his circumstances, that was no excuse for him to do it. And it's no excuse for us either. Doing things that God does not approve of, has not commanded in his word, to help our church to grow more so that we can build a bigger building, so that we can have every single row filled with people here, because we can do something that will make that happen up here is no excuse for doing that. Nor is making our worship service, our worship location more aesthetically pleasing with statuary or stained glass windows of Jesus, nor is there an excuse for that, even though it's pretty to look at. Everybody... You know, most everybody should appreciate good art. But not in here. Not doing what is part of our worship of the Lord. Secondly and briefly, because God is exceedingly zealous for his own worship, not only must you and I not worship him according to our own desires, we must do the opposite, and that is we must only worship him according in accordance with his commands either implied or expressed, uh, explicitly stated. We must not only worship him in accordance with his, that is to say, God's commands. That God intends to be the sole determiner, in other words, us not included in the determining, that he intends to be the sole determiner of what he will, of what we will do, rather, in our worship of him, is implied by his rejection of Nadab and Abihu's creative worship. He cooked them. He didn't like what had just happened. I think we can pretty much draw a pretty clear line there, even though there is an explicit statement, God didn't like this. It's clear God didn't like this. Also, that God intends to be the sole determiner uh, of what he will, uh, what we rather will do in our worship of him is also evident from the second commandment. The second commandment uh, is the commandment respecting images. The second commandment in it, God is forbidding us to worship him in a way that he does not approve of, and that is explicitly through the use of images, like what they were doing at Mount Sinai um, uh, with, um, with, the, with the golden calf. In the second commandment, it deals explicitly with that particular way that offends God of use of images. But implied in that prohibition in the second commandment is a broader commandment not to worship God in any way, not expressly or, imp- or implicitly approved of and authorized by him in his word. And that we know that that's the proper understanding of the second commandment is because it is unpacked for us by Moses over in Deuteronomy 12. And I'm going to read that uh, passage here uh, in just a minute. God, in Romans, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, uh, Moses is giving an inspired commentary, if you will, of the second commandment. He is fleshing out the implications of the second commandment uh, on, on images. And he's, uh, he's talking about how believers are and how they are not to worship God in Deuteronomy 12. Turn with me there. And this is... Uh, not the first time many of you have uh, read this passage, um, but it's important to be reminded of it. So, 
I'm going to read, um, uh, I'm going to start back in chapter, uh, verse 8, and I'm going to read through verse 14 of Deuteronomy 12. Then I'm going to skip over to 27 and read through the end of the chapter, okay? So, verse 8 through 14, Deuteronomy 12, here's what it says. The Lord uh, speaking uh, through Moses, of course, and he says there, You shall not do at all what we are doing Wait, you shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the resting place and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. When you cross the Jordan and live in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in security, then it shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for his name to dwell there, you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution of your hand, and all your choice votive offerings which you will vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Then notice this. Be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do what I command you. Now skip over to verse 27. Same chapter. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall eat the flesh. Be careful to listen to all these words which I command you, I hear is Moses, which I command you, in order that it may be well with you and your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. So notice the context of all this is worship. That's the that's what Moses is preaching on, in effect, right now. Then he says this in verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations which you are going in to possess, and you... which you're going in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods that we also may do likewise? And then here's the clincher. You shall not behave thus, toward the Lord your God. For every abominable act which the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to, nor take away from it. Notice the stress that the Lord in that last uh, verse places on through Moses on being careful. Being careful, what? To do what he commands us to do with respect to his worship. But notice also that when it comes to our worship of God, we are commanded, we are forbidden rather from doing anything more than he commands or less than he commands with respect to his worship. We have no, if, if I can put it this way, we have no leeway. You do exactly what I tell you to do. And that's what that text is saying there. And that is an unpacking of the meaning and the implications of the second commandment in which the specific example of images don't do images uh, the, uh, that's what's implied in that commandment. We are only to worship God the way he wants and nothing else comes into the equation to be considered. Not pragmatism, not church growth, 
not the desire to reach more lost people with the gospel, not our own uh, desire for um, aromas and visually stimulating things in our place of worship. None of that makes a hill of beans worth the difference and must not be included in our understanding of what we do when we worship God. And by the way, this includes not just, although it's particularly regarding corporate worship, but this even includes our private worship. We shouldn't hold pictures of Jesus in front of us. We shouldn't have statues. uh, Or other things. uh, In our family worship or our private worship. God says, no, this is my worship. Not yours. It's mine. So in conclusion, what do we draw from this? Well, first of all, we need to uh, study, not just me or the elders, but you, need to study God's word carefully to learn what elements God does approve of in his worship and to be zealous for those. Now, the scriptures are the final authority there. But the Westminster Standards, as for those of you that were present in Sunday school when we were talking about confessions, are exceedingly helpful in this. We are standing and we should stand on the shoulders of the history of our forefathers in the faith, who, while not perfect, were very godly and were very careful, especially um, the folks that wrote our confession. And we need to take exceedingly seriously what they wrote. Because they said, this is what we understand the scriptures to teach. And as I have often said in the past, um, to other people and perhaps to you, you need to be very, very careful before you walk away and say, I disagree with the Westminster Divines. There's a place for that, but so many people, including in our own circles, cavalierly dismiss what the Westminster Standards teach on this and other subjects because some seminary professor had some novel new idea on what scripture taught on the subject. I see it all the time, by the way, going through in the Candidates Credentials Committee down at Presbytery that I was at this past Friday. Thankfully, it didn't happen on Friday. At any rate, um, it's it's common. And you are need to be as vigilant as the elders. And you need to know what you believe, and you need to know why. Why, rather. And you need to... And I would urge you to use the Westminster Standard as a, as uh, as a um, something to look to as what is biblical, uh, and be very careful before you say, "I don't think that is biblical." It's not wise to be cavalier about that. Also, another thing, that, the way this applies to you and me, is that if there is an activity that is not expressly authorized by God that we are engaging in here or in some other worship setting at home or whatever, you need to be opposed to it. You need to actively stand up and say, this is not right, as I understand the scriptures. Now, you need to be humble about that. But if we do something that uh, is not biblical up here, uh, you need to call us on it. Uh, and uh, you need to be you need to be vigilant at, it's not just we elders who are required to be vigilant. And then another thing is you need to make sure that you belong to a church that worships God in this way if you're not a member of this church. You need to belong to a church that is careful about the way it worships God and tries and is vigilant about trying to do it the way God wishes to be worshipped as expressed in his word. And then finally, if you're here today and you don't are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone, that is the Jesus who is 100% God and 100% man and is the only Savior of sinners. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the only way to God is what that means. If you have not are not trusting actively in Jesus as your only hope of avoiding going to hell, which is what you deserve and what I deserve. We all deserve it.
If you aren't trusting Jesus to take your hell in your hell in your place, then you are on the road to hell. And you will go there, justly so, if you do not flee to Jesus Christ, um, who was and is God. He is the third person, uh, the second person of the Godhead. There is one God, only one God. He is. There are three personal distinctions in His divinity, His divine being, and uh, Jesus, uh, the Son, is one of those persons. And that Son, when He came to Earth and became a human being, He purchased salvation for all those who will look to Him in faith, faith alone, not in a baptism. Not in church attendance, not in being a good person, as society defines it, but looks to Jesus alone and clings with all the faith you have to him. Have you done that? Is there anybody here who hasn't done that? If you haven't, do it today. Because if you die tomorrow without Christ, you will enter into uh, the wrath of God forevermore. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this sobering passage. But Lord, it is good to hear these words and to see the, uh, to unpack the meaning of these words because you are the only God who is worth worshiping. Because you are so holy, and because you are the are the uh, personification of good and wisdom and power and beauty, uh, we need you, and we should want you the way you want to be wanted, and the way you want to be needed. Would you please, Lord, teach each one of us something today? about what we need to do, what we need to personally, how we need to personally apply this text. Lord, show us if there is um, dross in our worship, if there is man-made religion uh, that has crept into our private worship, our family worship, or our corporate worship. And would you cause us to be willing to let go of it for your sake, out of love for you and respect for you and your zeal for that worship. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.